Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Drumforge. Drumforge is a forward-thinking developer of audio tools and software for musicians and producers alike. Founded on the idea that great drum sounds should be obtainable for everyone, we focus on your originality. Drumforge, it's your sound. And now your host, A.L. Levy. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. My name is A.L. Levy, and... With me is the Grammy-nominated Spellman Award-winning educator, engineer, uh, renaissance man, well-known Facebook recording guru, Mr. Matthew Weiss. Hi. Hi. I am well-known uh, for recording Facebook. It's true. <laughs> you do a good job of recording Facebook. Yeah, screenshots everywhere. You know that I actually have folders and folders of screenshots. If someone were to commandeer my computer, they'd get really annoyed trying to find anything because of the amount of screenshots I take. I believe that. And it's all kinds of dumb shit, too. Like, sometimes I'll get excited. I'll be like, I really need to show this to somebody and screenshot, like, five different versions of something really dumb. Forget about it completely. And then when I'm going back through my own files and trying to find something, it's like, man, why do I do this to myself? Okay, I was joking. (laughs) I was not joking. I don't joke. I don't have that chip. Um, Anyways, I'm going to keep on talking about you. Yeah. Yeah, if you guys haven't heard of him, he's worked with... Artists such as Snoop Dogg done a ton of um, major label stuff. You would know him from the Pro Audio Files. He runs WeissSound.com. Uh, He's uh, a main contributor at Mixing with EQ. Has done lots of speaking engagements at Cornell University, Pro Studio Live, South by Southwest. The boy has been around. And uh, thank you for being here. Hey, my pleasure. So... I have a question. I'm wondering, uh, have you always wanted to be one of those dudes who has a lot going on, meaning doesn't just engineer, but also educates and is involved in a million different things? Or did that happen by accident? Or was that kind of by design? Both. So when I was younger, I changed my career goals like a thousand times. And it's because I've always wanted to have my hands in a lot of things. I like it when interesting and new things are happening. So if I was just doing one thing, I get bored. Uh, What happens when you get bored? uh, I mean, obviously copious amounts of drug use, violence, um, you know, that kind of, no, I mean, <laughs> that would be interesting, wouldn't it? No, yeah. nothing happens when I get curious. bored. When I get bored, I get I get sad and I get lonely and I get uh, tired and, yeah, I hate being bored. Well, I mean, that's pretty much why I failed in school was uh, boredom. Yeah. Uh, boredom is like the enemy to me. So when someone tells me that they need to do a lot of stuff, because they get bored. I'm always curious what it entails, because I also do know some people whose boredom does equal copious amounts of drug use and violence and things like that. (laughs) Yeah, for the record, that was a joke on my part. (laughs) I I knew a kid who couldn't handle the boredom, and he tried to burn his school down um, back when I was in uh, high school. So, you know, different people deal with it in different ways, but... Uh, for me personally, I yeah, I kind of get depressed and I get super anxious and I started doing badly at my work when I got bored. So I figured that I needed to just always keep it interesting. Sounds like it's a very similar thing for you. Yeah, well, also, whatever I'm mainly focused on tends to, I get worse at it because I start, the imagination starts to go a little too crazy. Whereas, you know, if I'm if I'm divided between a few things, I actually get everything done and I get it all done faster, which is weird, but that's how it works for me at least. So, how, so how many different things do you normally have going at once? Usually, it's a revolution between like four different things. Uh, in in this case, it's it's like five. So, I'll be doing my regular engineering work, then I'll be doing my semi-regular educational work, and then I will, I take on uh, what I consider like (laughs) high-risk, high-reward vanity project type stuff, where I just really love the music and I want to be involved, and I'll be involved in that on a creative level. 
Uh, and then right now I'm also doing some fiction writing just for fun. Um, and I'm also doing a lot of boxing. Uh, and then also I spend a lot of time with would my it, wife. Would, it, would, it, would the boxing part be the high risk? No, because I don't do a lot of actual fighting. I do a little bit of actual fighting, but mostly it's just training to be in shape and to have fun. Man, boxing is crazy. Like the level of shape that you have to be in to be a good boxer is unbelievable. I have a brother that is a semi-pro MMA guy, and uh, even boxers kick his ass. I, well, yeah. I mean, if he's if he's boxing, I'm sure it, MMA is a little bit different. I've I've done a little bit of MMA, and it's and that's no joke either. Like <laughs> that that ground and pound stuff is tiring. Yeah, not for me. Um, so when you say high risk, what did you mean in all seriousness? What I mean is that it's, it's I'll take on one or two projects a year where I don't really expect to ever see any money from it because there it's such a long shot to do it. But I take it on because I love the actual music. And uh, sometimes I, I guess the only real risk is sometimes I get overly involved in those projects and I have to like kind of like check myself a little bit to, because they're the ones that I want to be doing. You know what I mean? So, so the risk is to your time basically. Yeah. When I'm saying high risk, I mean like, well, it's also monetary investment. I have a studio overhead and I dedicate some of my studio time to that. And so that costs me money out of pocket. And sometimes I will also, I will take on the financial burden of producing the record. Uh, so, I mean, there, there's actual legitimate risk, but it's never anything that's crazy. I used to do projects like those. How often they, they broke my heart too many times. Um, that's yeah. why I stopped. Do you? Do you? So you just keep taking them, beside, despite the heartbreak, though. Well, I find that if I get overly involved in the entire scope of things, like if I end up taking on more than like maybe one song at a time, then no, I can't do that. I did that. I made that mistake actually a few months ago and really regretted it, but. Uh, now what I'm doing with an artist is just one song. And, you know, after this song is done, maybe I'll do another, maybe I won't. And I'll just leave it at that. But yeah, as long as I'm not overly involved, then it's not a bad thing. You know, how do you gauge if you're going to go further? I just feel it out. Fair enough. And what are you hoping will happen in the majority of these projects? A major label, or some sort of career development? Well, I try not to hope for anything in specific because that's I think that's where the heartbreak will come from if the, if you put too much expectation on it. So for me, it's like, you know, I started the basis of like, if I put this up on my reel, is this something that I'm going to be really proud of? And if I can say yes to that, then at the end of the day, I don't really feel like I'm ever taking a serious loss. You know, and then I ask myself, is this a person that I really enjoy working with? You know, is this somebody I'm going to work with 10 years from now? And if the answer to that is yes, then I, I don't feel like I can really really lose out. Ideally, what I'll be able to do is pull some of my contacts. I have some some contacts in the uh, the publishing world and some contacts in the uh, A&R world and that kind of stuff. And, you know, hopefully I'll be able to make something happen. Hopefully the artists who, you know, I, I try and work with artists who have something going. It's not like the absolute most important, but just something on their own as well. Because otherwise it's like, you know what I mean? Like it, I would just end up working with everybody all the time. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, hopefully, some of that those connections can can be used to propagate the record. Uh, but yeah, I don't I don't try and set the bar too high. Now, do you think that because you are, uh, let's just say, established and stable in your career, and you have so many things going on that it can afford you the peace of mind to do these risky projects without getting too involved because your life doesn't depend on it. If, you know, the project fails, you, you're, that's not the end of you as an engineer or a musician. Absolutely. If, if I didn't, if I wasn't stable with, with work, then I would have to be spending my time. And sometimes I have to do this because, you know, it, it, it's not like it's, there's always ups and downs. It's, it's always a roller coaster when you're self-employed. So sometimes I have to take a step aside from everything and I have to focus. I have to work on getting work. That's part of my job. Uh, 
but yeah, I mean, right now I'm steady, so that's good, and I can afford the time to to dedicate a few hours a week. Let's talk a little bit about working on getting work because I think that a lot of uh, a lot of artsy people, let's just call them artsy, even though the term is creative. So a lot of creatives don't see that as part of their jobs. I always have. Um, and, you know, I've been supporting myself through my music or some uh, offshoot of music for years now because I always saw getting work as part of the job. Like, you can't you can't distance the, them or you're fucking yourself. Just like I've always seen marketing as just as important as the music itself. And, you know, whether my artistic side, my integrity side might not like it, but my living in the real world side tells my artistic side to shut the hell up. Um, I'm just wondering, uh, how do you approach working on getting work? Like what's, what's your take on it? Working on getting work is 50% of my job. So if, if I want however much work I want or however, or whatever kind of price tag I want to bring in, half of what goes into that is, is going to be my other job effectively. So if I want to work 40 hours a week, I'm going to have to spend 40 hours a week doing it to get that work. And which it seems like a lot, but it's kind of true and it's not all at the same time, but it's basically like, you know, if I mix maybe two or three records a week, uh, songs, single songs, you know, if I'm not doing an album project, then that gives me three days to four days of the week to focus on making sure that the following week or the following month, really, or the following two months from now, I'm going to have the work lined up. So it's, it's a long game. That's one of the things that's really important to recognize. You don't, you don't, scrounge for work for the next day. You scrounge for work for the next three months to a year from now. And that's why I think people hit a lot of walls starting out because they don't realize that the first couple of years that you're starting out, your primary focus is not on doing work, it's on getting work. Um, for me, the actual on the ground side of it, I try and do it more through word of mouth and through face-to-face interaction. I know a lot of people spend a lot of time online trying to get work. I'm like an E-list online celebrity. I get a lot of inquiries online, and almost none of them are worth it. Well, you're well known through the educational stuff you do, but does that ever result in actual studio work for you? Very rarely, because most of the time people are coming to me with budgets that are not even enough for my assistant. Yeah, I was going to say that, like, uh, the budgets that have come to me through Nail the Mix, you know, every once in a while you'll get a student who wants me to mix, and the budgets are nowhere near anything that I would take seriously. Well, yeah, I mean, mean, it's like... I understand where people are coming from and I don't try, I try and take everything because my assistant is very good and I have an intern who I'm training and I supervise the intern's work. So, you know, for people who, who want to get me the cheap way, you, you go through one of my assistants and I'm involved. I make sure that everything that leaves the studio still suits my standards, Mm -hmm. but you know, the, the budget has to cover my studio overhead Otherwise, I, I can do a million other things with it. I can do an educational project with the money that I spend on my studio overhead and make more. So it doesn't make any sense monetarily. I'm just not incentivized to do it. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so when it comes to uh, actually working on getting work, you live in L.A. Does that help? Yes. I specifically For the in-person part. Yeah, that's why I moved out to L.A. You know, there's, there's a saying, uh, if you want to be a fisherman and you live in Arizona, it's time to move to Alaska, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, one thing I've always wondered about L.A., and I love it there, and I find myself going there once every couple months for work, is how anyone gets anything done with the <laughs> intense social schedules that you guys have. Like, holy shit, you guys go out every goddamn night. I don't. Okay, good. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't do that shit. I'm not that kind of person. The, what makes it hard for me to get stuff done is that you, it's, you did. You did laugh though. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh yeah, I know. What you, I, I went to the AES after party and they had burlesque dancers, dude. 
Wow, that's not something you see in the studio every day. That's not something you say. <laughs> when they do AES in New York afterwards, it's a bunch of people with like something that's a cross between the fryer tuck, a rat tail, and a ponytail lined up in a bar. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's not. It's a completely different world, but it's I don't I don't do that shit. But I do I do go out sometimes, and more than that, I'm I. It can be distracting because it's the weather's so nice here all the time, and so like I could have Ubered back today. For example, I was downtown, but instead I just walked halfway. It was like three miles walking, but it was just so nice that I was like, you know, I'm just gonna go a little later tonight, and I'm gonna I'm gonna walk. It really is nice out there. I'm jealous of you guys for that. You should be. You should be jealous. Well, I am. That's good. I, I, I definitely am. I'm not. I just wonder how it, like how disciplined you need to be though, to get work done. More disciplined than me. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, Dan's still waiting on a couple of things. Uh, my bad. Sorry, Dan. Sorry, Dan. Well, I mean, so for someone coming up. Uh, they're hearing this and they're like, all right, so you need to spend just as much time trying to book yourself as actually doing the booked work. And real quick, let me say that I completely agree. Like, for instance, um, like with Nail the Mix right now, I just booked out the entire rest of the year. We're in June right now. And it was giving me anxiety not to have the rest of 2017 booked out which it is now booked out and I can rest easy until July, at which point I'm going to start losing sleep over January through June. Um, (laughs) And I've lived my entire life that way. And I can also say that my dad being a symphony conductor who still does gigs for a living, he gets the same way. You know, if he's not booked out for like a year or two, uh, the stress comes in and he works his ass off getting those gigs years in advance. So you take someone coming up who has a day job, how do they balance the time spent on the day job plus the time trying to book their studio plus the time actually working at recording? Uh, You know, for me, it was a transitional thing. I went from day job to part-time job to... Holy crap, I am poor making my money off of music. And by that time, I was an in house engineer and then, uh, you know, building up my career from there. So, you know, it's 2017. When I started doing this, it was like 2006. Like, that's so I think we're in different worlds. Um, And really, I had started even before then because even when I was in school, I was already kind of heading in that direction and talking to people and knew a lot of musicians and everything like that. So, I mean, I kind of feel like I started very early. Usually in the music business, I think you need about a solid, like, 10 years on this side of it to really have a career going. I kind of got mine together in about five. So I think that my process was shortchanged in terms of time. What do you attribute that to? I attribute that to the fact that I started in that world before I started in that world. I was already making music for people when I was in high school. Like I was, mm-hmm. I was making. I got a, I got a Roland three hundred five for my birthday when I was fourteen years old, and it was a rap. Like <laughs> from there, it was like already happening, and I was making music, and I was meeting musicians, and I was already interested in a certain capacity at that point. Um, so, you know, getting that, that heads up on things. I mean, the guy I cooperate the studio with was working with Kanye when he was like 21. It's sometimes people are just, they fall into those kinds of circumstances, but then you've got guys like Athens, uh, who masters the biggest records in the world. And he didn't even really start, start until he was 32. So it just, Everyone's got different circumstances. It's so hard for me to prescribe one way of doing it. But, you know, you have to you have to do it. The the big thing I would say, if you are working a day job and you're trying to transition into the world of music full time, 
in, if you are not prepared to put in the effort on all fronts, then you don't really want to do music as a career. You want to do it for fun and you want to get paid for fun. And everybody wants to get paid to have fun, but there is a humongous difference because if you want to get paid as mu- for music as a career, you will learn an instrument. You will take the time to learn an instrument. You will go out and make sure that you are meeting people in your local music community all the time as a patron, as somebody working a soundboard, as you know, whatever, whatever you can take to be surrounded by those things. And you'll have a lot of late nights. And if you don't do that, you're just not really, that's not you. And that's okay. But be honest with yourself or you're going to be disappointed down the road. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, the ones who turn it into something real basically immerse themselves in it. And thinking back to my formative years, yeah, I was, uh, I mean, guitar was my primary instrument, but I also learned drums, I learned vocals, uh, learned some keyboards. I uh, went to local studios to try to help out some. I did a little bit of live sound. I sponsored live shows. My band would uh would go on little tours hoping to get signed eventually um and you know i i was in it in it to win it at all times always trying to meet musicians always trying to make new music always trying to find some opportunity and that lasted for years and the important thing to point out after all of those things being said playing four instruments that i think you listed being touring uh, you know, meeting, doing the sound work and all that kind of stuff. That's what got you started. Yes. Right. That's so just so that nobody has any illusions. I mean, I'm not a good instrumentalist, but I've been practicing my piano again. I played for about three years and now I'm practicing again. I've got my guitar right next to me here. I'm learning my chords, getting the bass down under my fingers. It's not because I ever think that I'm going to be the instrumentalist on a record, although it has happened. It's because... I, I live, eat, sleep, and breathe music, and it really is my calling that how can I not learn it? You know what I mean? Yeah, for me, it was a matter of how am I going to create this stuff or communicate this stuff without having it in my DNA some, I guess, in my subconscious. Like, how can I really communicate with a drummer if I don't even understand how their how their limbs move. That's right. So, you know, I, it's not like I was ever a good drummer, um, but that kind of education paid off so in so many multiples. Years later, um, you know, years later when I'm working on tons of metal records where the drummers can't play worth a shit. And my engineer and myself, I mean, we're talking 10 years later, my engineer and myself are trying to figure out ways to get around this without having to program drums. And we figured out, okay, uh, why don't we put trigger pads on the kick, snare, and toms, and then one of us will physically play the cymbals. And that way we can use MIDI for the shells because those are easy to fake and then have real cymbals and that'll be the closest we can get to something that sounds real and salvage this bad situation. And the ability to do things like that was a direct result of those eight months of drum lessons I took 10 years before that. I wouldn't have, you know, evolved to the point of being able to do that sort of thing without that. And I definitely wasn't thinking that far ahead when I took the lessons. I was just thinking I need to just get an understanding for music. I need to I just need to do this for whatever reason. I need to understand how drums work. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. It's been nice talking to you. That was a great interview, yeah. man. It was wonderful. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> no, so um, I, I have a, a few more questions for you, actually. Um, you, you definitely do a lot of work on a very different end of the musical spectrum than what the listeners of this podcast typically listen to, which is metal. And uh, that's why I'm excited to have you on here. Yeah, and um, for, for those for the metal folks who are on here, uh, my most recent project has been working with Cisco. Yeah, which is <laughs> badass. Um, Damn right it is. <laughs> yeah, oh no, yeah, it's it's great. So um, I want to ask you about some mix techniques, if that's okay. Because I don't know uh, any. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you don't know any. So. Will you work in genres that are 
fairly rhythm intensive. What's your signal chain like for mixing kick drums? Like, if you had to think of one right off the top of your head. Are we talking acoustic or program? Either. So the fader is my best friend on program kick. I'll try and get away with just pushing the fader up, especially if it's an EDM record, because usually the kick is very deliberate and very processed. If it's a hip-hop record, then usually what I'm doing is some kind of reinforcement. That's my my go-to, is usually to tuck a sign or to uh, use like an 808 or add like a click at the front, like trigger a click, because the again, the character of the kick is probably pretty deliberate. Uh, if I'm processing it, it really just depends on why I'm processing it, and that's going to change my signal chain. Um, I know that's sort of a non-answer, but it's kind of the only answer, really. Um, for acoustic, I tend to... It depends on how it sounds to begin with, but I tend to to filter things out a little bit in the bleed because you usually want a slightly cleaner sound for a lot of the stuff that I'm doing. So I use Sound Radix Drum Leveler right at the front to get rid of uh, some of the... It's like it's like a gate, but it does it with mm-hmm. sample detection instead of envelope detection. That's a cool company. Yeah, Sound Radix is amazing. And uh, their drum leveler is brilliant. Once once I've done that, the reason I'm doing that to kind of minimize that bleed is not because I'm such an enemy of bleed, but because I'm usually about to like get pretty aggressive on my kicks with my compression. Because a lot of the times I want my live kicks to kind of act like a sample kick. So my chain will usually be my Filtech EQ or one of my Pultex, and then going into a compressor, a DBX 160SL, and I'll use both stages. I'll use a little bit of the compression stage, and then I'll use the limiting stage as well. And sometimes what I do, my, my DBX is actually broken purposefully. Uh, it's a little mod where you can take the bypass circuit out, and so if you uh, bypass the limiter and you turn the threshold down, you end up starving the headroom so it becomes a soft clipper. And a lot of the times I'll use that because it's a little bit more in your face. It's It changes the color, but we're doing that anyway. Nice. I love the DBX-160s. Yeah, they're great. On drums. Yeah, uh, I've got two of them. So how do you deal with snare drums in a mix? I mean, <laughs> I know, I know I'm asking you some very broad questions, but the reason is that you're coming from such a different world than what we're used to over here that I'm kind of looking for anything goes, whatever comes to your mind. Um, and I'm also curious to see if the first thing that comes to mind is very similar to something that you would hear on this podcast on a regular basis. Okay, well, with... So I, so I know I'm asking you very open-ended questions. Okay, well, I mean, I'll try my best then. With program snares, again, if we're talking like R&B, hip-hop, uh, EDM, particularly EDM, again, I tend to leave it more or less alone because those things are super processed. Uh, and if I can get away with it, sometimes the EDM ones are a little bit light in the ass, so, you know, I might add a little bit of bass to them. I find myself doing that reasonably often. When you, when you add bass to a snare, how do you go about it? Uh, usually the Hoser XT by David Bendeth through Boz Digital, that, that little plug-in has a really nice low end. Nice. What what range do you normally tweak? I usually do it from a shelf uh, if I'm just trying to add general weight, and I'll usually start it around like 150, somewhere in there, unless mm-hmm. I'm going for like that very fundamental resonance of the snare. Most of the snares in the EDM are never based on acoustic snares to begin with, so that's why I'm doing the shelf. But if it is based on like an acoustic-sounding snare and I'm trying to add a little weight to it, I'm going to try and find that like core weight resonant point that's somewhere between like 100 at the deepest to like maybe 250 for like a piccolo kind of a thing and find that, you know that sweet spot. As soon as you do it, your meter jumps and it goes right in your face, Uh, except for an octave lower than what I just did. And then I'll do (laughs) I'll slightly broaden out the cue and just find the point where it still feels like a natural snare, but just has the weight that it was missing. So low end plays a huge part in the genres that you work in. Yes. Probably most exaggerated in EDM music. Uh, Do you take lots of steps to control the EQ, or do you do things like we do where we split the the bass into multiple tracks and treat them differently, like one track of processing for the sub, one for the lows, and one for the low mids? Um, Do you use things like multiband on 
the on the sub end of things like how do you approach the ultra low end i i do use multiband i with edm stuff in particular i get very micromanagerial because your your low end space it can be deceptive because EDM in particular, actually metal, you probably run into this very similarly. The expectation is for the record to be loud. And I'm not talking about mm-hmm. like loud, like a hip hop record is loud. I'm talking about like, fuck, that is loud. Yeah. The, yeah. It's supposed to be violent. That's right. <laughs> Violently loud. <laughs> that's right. Violently loud. That's a good way of putting it. And for EDM, the purpose though is a little different. For metal, it's to convey a sense of of anger. But or intensity. But for EDM, it's because when you play it back in a club, you have no control over the volume knob and you want that shit to bang as loud as possible. And the audience is in an environment where they can't appreciate nuance really anyway. So in a way, the loudness thing kind of makes sense for EDM, even though people crap on it. Uh, But when you're doing that, you you run the biggest biggest thing that's going to get in your face. If you manage everything right and you're not really worried about distortion, the biggest problem you're going to run into is the low end starts to smear very badly. So... You you really do need to like if your kick duration is only supposed to be like a quarter note in length and you've got sub that's tailing off of your kick for like half half a bar or something like that, you gotta chop it. Or it's gonna end up sounding really weird once you smash it through that limiter. It might sound okay before then, but it's gonna sound weird later. Uh, so yes, I do I get pretty micromanagerial. A lot of the producers I work with kind of are savvy about that stuff, so I don't I don't always have to get too nuanced, but you know, if I'm working with somebody who's just getting into what they're doing, then yeah, multi-band, multi-band gating actually pretty often. Do you ever use a transient designer to control the length of the low end? Uh, it's sort of the same thing. It's same idea, same concept. Yeah, I use transient designers for program material. I use transient designers a little differently than I think they translate to metal records or to rock records. I use transient designers to, I push them into limiters and create my own sort of like sculpted attack where the attack is almost a different signal in a way than the actual root drum. That makes sense. We actually do that sometimes too. No, you don't. Yeah. Okay. Okay, fine. I believe you. Uh, I promise. <laughs> I promise, bro. What can I say? I'm, on the inside, I'm very metal. <laughs> well, I, I'm just... Uh, I, I think lots of these techniques are kind of similar, but uh, I, the size of the low end that you deal with is just another order of magnitude. If you tried to get that kind of low end on a metal record, it would just sound like... A, Shit. Like a fabulous fart. <laughs> yeah, sound like crap. But I mean, yeah. you you deal with low end in a different sense because a lot of the times you have to balance. What I go through with with kick and bass on an EDM record is probably very similar to what you go through with guitar and bass on a metal record. Yeah, the, with metal, it's like this delicate balancing act between the low end of the kick, the bass, and the guitar, and it's like fitting a puzzle together. And once you get it and it locks, it's just perfect. But until you get to that point, it <laughs> is it can be quite quite a disaster. And he, that's kind of what sets the you know the men from the boys in metal is being able to do that. That low end control is everything. Yeah. But what's funny to me, man, is put up a metal record that you think sounds huge next to uh, you know an R and B or hip hop or EDM record and just cry. Because <laughs> the low end is so much bigger on on everything else. Metal sounds so tiny compared to that, but uh, but it's more about the I guess the power and the punch. Um, well, it's it's mostly about what you want your audience to get, and you know, yeah. I there's when you're when you're playing a lot of hip hop and and club music and things like that, you're in an environment where the pace the pace of the dancing is usually more controlled. Uh, you don't really have a lot of changing time signatures in those genres. And so the the dancing is meant to be very simplified and very controlled. And the organization of that low end, that's the actual physical push that moves your body physically. It's like, this is what helps white people dance. 
<laughs> so with metal, it's like you need something to. <laughs> metal is more about rocking out, in which case, you know, whether or not you're on beat while you're rocking out is a fairly moot point, I think. Yeah, the <laughs> the jury is out as to whether or not it matters. Right, because it's a different so, vibe. It's a different. It's a different movement. Yeah, I, there are some bands, much more modern, who uh, have figured out how to incorporate real grooves in with the metal, and they tend to do really, really well, hmm. like uh, danceable grooves. You could hear it at a, at a hip hop show or something um they tend to do very very well and we're not we're not talking new metal here right no 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 we're talking bands like issue we're talking bands like issues or something um no we're definitely not talking cornrows (laughs) and new metal (laughs) though new metal did do very well at, at the time you know, I'm a Linkin Park fan. I'm not going to lie. I know that half of your audience just completely shut off this interview this very second. But No, I think lots of them love Linkin Park. Uh, a, yeah. I mean, they wrote great songs. Yeah, I mean, let's let's as long as we're not lying to ourselves like it's pop music, but Yeah. You know, I love pop music, so and there's an art to pop music. Yeah, I I don't think anyone in the audience is going to is going to bag on Lincoln Park. Maybe they don't like the new stuff so much, but uh yeah, I was involved in that. <laughs> so, so we we've uh we've had Josh Newell on who's worked with them a lot too. Uh, he worked on the new stuff as well and and uh he's aware that a lot of people don't like a lot of the new stuff, but I heard it. It just sounded like pop to me. That's that's right. It's you know in the grand scheme of things, when you're, what, 10 albums deep, something like that, the room for experimentation is there. And we see this with Kanye West all the time, where Kanye West is one of these guys who he takes a lot of chances with his music. So when he fails, he fails hard. And when he succeeds, he succeeds on levels that other people don't even know how to succeed because he's willing to take those risks. And I think the same is true for where Linkin Park is at in their career. They wanted to do something that was more mainstream pop. And so they took that risk. Now, whether or not that turns out to be successful at the end of the day, you know, time will tell. Uh, it's it's not my favorite album for sure, but it came in at well, number one. I mean, in a way, for Lincoln Park, that's not necessarily a beacon of success. There's Fair such enough. a there's such a big band. I mean, it's like a number one is not even really an accomplishment for those guys anymore. They're huge. I remember when they were the biggest band in the world. And uh, like literally the biggest band in the world, and I know that they haven't they haven't decreased in size too much from that point. So I heard the new stuff, and while I realized what a lot of the metal fans were complaining about, all I was thinking was, I'm sure that there's a bunch of other people who couldn't care less about the metal stuff who might actually like this. Right. Well, and that's that's the thing is is that they've never really been a metal band and they never were. They were mm-hmm. never a hip hop band, they were never a metal band, they were never a pop group, they were never any they were never an emo band. They were sort of a a smash of all of those things kind of put together in an accessible way. You know, and so they've never been any of those things. So anybody who's a purist of a genre is not going to like them. Fuck purists, anyways. I mean, yeah, that too. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. So let's talk about the Pro Audio Files some. Uh, how did that come about for you? And uh, what led you to want to do that? Uh, well, not to be shallow, but money. I uh, <laughs> I was writing posts on Gear Slots and... Uh, hey, man, these, these lights don't pay for themselves, so... I'm working on a, on a device to make that happen, but, you know, one day. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me know when you figure it out. I'll, I'll be sure. <laughs> Actually, I have a friend in Texas who who came pretty close to doing it. Uh, but anyway, uh, neither here nor there. So I was 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 he disappeared by the government? No, he was having trouble getting investors. He figured out a material for solar panels that charged much more effectively than the silicon that's being used right now. And by like a substantial amount, it was charging, it could store more and took up less space and charged faster. So 
he, he, before but, he met before he met his untimely demise. Right. <laughs> no, he's he's still in Texas. He's he's working on other endeavors because he's just he's having trouble getting the funding to actually like construct a significant prototype. Uh, we are way off track here, though. Holy moly! <laughs> yes, uh, but hopefully I'll get rich enough where I can invest in his company. You know what I mean? Anyway. That, <laughs> all right, so pro audio files. So I was posting on Gear Sluts. I guess I joined Gear Sluts around like maybe 2009, 8, something like Sounds that. Sounds about right. Uh, and Dan, who was starting up the blog, I, uh, he was reading Gear Sluts and things like that, trolling around, and he was reading the stuff that I was writing and was like, you know, you're you're a good writer. You should you should write for my blog. And I was like, okay. And then he, he offered me 35 bucks an article, and I said yes. And that's how we started working together. Man, so you guys are one of the OGs when it comes to the online educational Space. We are one of the OGs. At the time that Pro Audio Files came out, uh, Pensado's place had not come out yet. Uh, Audio School Online had not come out yet. Uh, nothing from from the Nail the Mix stuff was out yet. Uh, Pure Mix was not out yet. And yeah, we we might have been. Well, Pure Mix was just coming out, so maybe my timeline's off on that. But because they were one of the first two, I think Groove Three was the only one that was out at the time, and so we were referring to things like uh, uh, "Mix It Like a Record" by Charles Die. That's what we had to go off of. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. That was like the first like audio educational VHS or DVD at a time where you could purchase both either the VHS or the DVD. So I guess around like 2002, uh, that's what was out. And then most of it was books, actually. Um, that like what that's the famous mastering book by the guy who's famous, I guess. From Bob Katz. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so that was that was what was out, and uh, uh, mixing with your mind was an amazing book that had come out maybe about a year prior. So we were we were we were in the genre of literature at the point in which the pro audio files came up. And how did that transition to video? It transitioned to video. Well, the plan was to do video from an early point, but I didn't want to do it because I was afraid of this old adage that said, those who can't do, teach. Yep. And then uh, Dave Pensato started doing his video stuff, and Ken Lewis started doing his video stuff. And that sort of, in my mind, gave me the realization that, you know, in 2000, what was it, 13 or 12, something like that? Mm-hmm. In 2012... Uh, that's not really true anymore. People people teach while their careers are still growing and while they're still very active in the subject that they are teaching. And so that gave me sort of the confidence to say, I can do both of these things. Yeah, I think that that uh, the, that, that old adage or whatever is... Uh, that old is adagio. Fairly, yeah, that old adagio. It's, it's fairly cliche and it, I agree that it's... It's more from a, more of an older time. Uh, I think I definitely do think that the world has changed. While there are, you know, there are some, uh, there is a lot of bullshit online. I will say that a lot you don't of, say. <laughs> yeah, a lot of bad info. Um, well, and so I think there's a difference though in where what that expression meant. Well, I believe when that expression was coined, what it meant is that teaching is what people did when they retired from the career path that they had been doing for a long time in order to then pass the torch, so to speak. I think, uh, I thought, oh, I thought it meant that they suck at what they do, so they're then going to teach. Well, I think it kind of transformed into that because now we have the opposite problem where. There's a lot of people who see the YouTube thing as a means of getting business. And so they they teach what they're doing. And while that, on a superficial level, it makes sense, those who never did are even a step below those who can't do. You know what I mean? Like Absolutely. It's, it's one thing for somebody who's struggling with their career but is but actually knows what they're doing. It's another thing for somebody who's never really even done it. And I think there's a lot of that. There is a lot of that. It's uh and 
I feel bad for the kids coming up who have to sift through that. But I do think that companies like yours or mine are doing a big service and helping, you know, helping at least provide some guiding light out there uh, in a sea of bad information. Well, and one of one of the markers is if if the company that you're interested in, or the people who are putting out the content, if they if they're putting out legitimate information about career development, that's one very positive sign. Uh, the other thing too is that I remember a moment ago I said that on a superficial level it made sense. I don't think people are that dumb. I think that people can recognize bullshit pretty quickly. And so if you don't really know what you're doing and you go out there trying to explain to the world how to do it when you yourself don't really know what you're doing, I, I think that it, it backfires. I think people see that and you become branded as an idiot. It doesn't help your career. It hurts it. I've definitely seen that happen to a few people. Yeah. Um, I've seen it happen to where uh, there's a few people who get very, very high and mighty and very preachy with their how to do things uh, and their opinions on how to mix. And then they post one of their own mixes and it's just terrible. God awful. It's fucking awful. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, why? You know, and I do, I know that in our community at least people call that shit out like they will not they don't tolerate that so i mean i i have the opposite side of it where i kind of encourage people i'm like yo go check out my portfolio please if you don't like the way i mix do not take my advice i am not gonna be mad (laughs) but i i feel like putting my music out there is is the best way in which i get people involved in what I'm doing with the education stuff. So yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's exactly that. It's a very superficial thing where it's like, wait a minute, you're, you're supposed to be the guy who's taking the lessons, give it a few years, then start teaching them. You'll be all right. Trust me. (laughs) And, uh, besides money, of course, I know that that's, I know that's what you said as a joke, but, uh, do you, what do you get out of teaching? Well, at the beginning when Dan approached me, it literally was just money because I wasn't thinking of it. I was already just writing stuff on Gear Sluts as responses to questions and things like that and just sharing for the fun of it. And when he said, I'm going to give you 35 bucks an article, I was like, okay, that sounds like a good way to make 35 bucks. It wasn't until I started delving more into it where people started kind of giving me this feedback saying like, you know, what you're saying is really helping, genuinely helping, where I started kind of saying, well, maybe this is more than just like a $35 an article thing. Maybe there's something really real here. And what I found is that the, you know, we all want to feel like we're making a difference. I think that's innate to most people. And what I found through the educational stuff is that I think because, I think because there is so much BS that by coming through and just being honest and trying to help genuinely, it really has resonated with people. And they start telling me like, you know, you've made a difference in my life. You've made a difference in my music production. I was able to land a publishing deal because I was able to get my own mixes and recordings up to snuff thanks to your videos. And, you know, seeing that kind of stuff sort of opened my eyes and it was like, well, what am I doing? Yeah, because I mean, what am I even doing when I'm engineering? I'm make, I'm taking somebody else's thing and I'm making it better. That's all that I'm doing as an engineer. And so when I'm doing that, it's no different with education. I'm taking somebody else's thing and just making it better. It's almost exactly the same. It's the same reason why I love both. Yeah, man, it's a great feeling watching someone who learned from you actually make their dreams into a reality. It's the most it's amazing a- feeling in the world. Yeah, it's really, really cool. Um, and for me, it was interesting. Uh, metal is a very, let's say, vocal community. Um, it's a very active and very vocal community. And so you can kind of really get a sense for it if you just get online and talk to people. And w- there was a while when I was working on lots of really big metal records uh or smaller metal records, but a lot of signed bands of different sizes. And I was just seeing this kind of this decline in quality in the players and also online. I was just starting to see this decline and also this decline in understanding of what it takes 
to be good. And I, I, it started to really mess with my head because I come from, you know, raised by a classical musician. I come from a school where you fucking work your ass off to get great. And uh, you use technology as a tool, not as a crutch and, you know, all these things. But uh, it was starting to really bum me out. And I felt like I needed to, like, put my draw the line in the sand put you know put the sword down and be and do something to try and uh steer the ship at least help some people get their shit together so that next generation of uh, metal makers have you know some good sounding music and you know whether or not i can affect the entire generation or not you know that's neither here nor there but the fact that i have been able to help some people get their shit together and uh get careers quit their jobs uh finish their first album all the way to you know get signed bands or do work for majors like all that stuff that's fantastic i love it i actually get more out of it than working with bands it's funny sometimes sometimes i do as well uh, it's actually it's part of the reason why I allow myself to indulge in in the vanity projects from time to time because that developmental side of it is so surprisingly rewarding. Although I guess it shouldn't be surprising in retrospect, it makes perfect sense. But I mean, it was so surprisingly rewarding that it was like, man, if I could just be doing this for people, I I feel like my life would be you know I've got my wife and I've got. And I'm I'm giving people inspiration and tools to to achieve their dreams. Like, what else do I need? You know. <laughs> so right. I mean, I, I'm hopefully one day. You know, once once the the every piece of the puzzle has come together, I'm I'll be basically like a stay at home dad who mainly focuses on the educational thing and then just works with a few select clients and maybe a couple of like random one offs that pique my interest. You know, to me, in a way, that's like that's li- that would be living the dream. Sounds great. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, right now I'm a hundred percent on the educational side. I haven't taken a client in besides one. I took one this year. Uh, I, I've been nail the mix and URM Academy are full time for me. I love it. Cool. Yeah. So yeah, living the dream for sure. I've got a few questions here from our crowd for you I'd All like right. to ask here's one from Michael Cranwell who says I notice your problem solving techniques are extremely thought out with subtle but effective results using hardware but also comparing software as well can I ask what techniques do you use to get a rap vocal to sit in a mix while also taming the bass and kick in combination I'm just looking to get another perspective for rap and electronic productions thanks Okay, so, um, yeah, I mean, I did a tutorial on that, a full-length tutorial, because it's not it's not really a one-sentence answer, but the general gist of it is that with rap in particular, I almost always start from the vocal, because I want to get the vocal to sound the absolute best that it can to me as almost like an acapella, although it will get adjusted a little bit as things go, but not very much. So I'm basically like making it sound like, like it was recorded by God. And then from there, it's a matter of bringing in the kick and the snare and just getting the balances right between the kick, snare, and vocal, working around the vocal. So it's not what I'm really doing to the vocal exactly. It's more like what I'm doing with the elements that are going to compete with the vocal. And so like, if I can get that snare, and a lot of it's just level, actually. If I can get the snare level to be like that perfect sweet spot of in your face, but also not like totally overstepping the vocal, and that kick where it's like really giving you that good punch to the gut without like making the vocal sound like it's tiny. If I can find that perfect sweet spot, and it's usually within like a 2 dB margin where that's arguable, then the rest of it's really not too tough. Okay, great answer. Um, Sam Hines is wondering, in general, do you have an approach for processing 808s or do you let them go with minimal work? Uh, it can be either or. It Well, one of the... 808 things to really be aware of is that the weight of the 808 is the fundamental tone. And an 808 is basically just a a, a sine wave with this tune. I mean, it's a little more complicated than that, but I mean, not much. 
what really defines an 808 is the overtones, which is the distortion. So if the 808 went through a tape machine being recorded, if it went through a console being recorded, if it was, you know, if it ran through some gear really hot to give it like a, like a buzzy quality or get some like fluffier harmonics that are up in the primary bass range, those are the things that kind of define what the 808 sounds like more so than just the sine wave whoomp of it. Uh, so I, I pay attention to the overtones and also the context. If it's, you know, if it's like a, like a Atlanta type trap type tune, then you're going to want a lot of aggression from that 808. So I'm going to, I'm going to distort it. I'm going to EQ it. I'm going to do whatever I have to do to bring out those buzzies as I call them. So it almost sounds like a, like a bass instrument laying on top of an 808. Uh, the other thing that is worth considering for 808s, you know, especially if the style of hip hop is cleaner, like, um, you know, some of the throwback Dirty South style 808s, uh, a lot of the stuff that you hear coming out of club scenes, like in Florida or the West Coast, it's how it's paired up with a regular kick drum, you know? So like with the Sunny Digital stuff, his 808s are not clean, but they're not like super blown up, distorted. It's really that they pair with these very simple, but very punchy, kick drums that allow them to really knock through. So it ends up sounding like one drum almost, but it just knocks because it has that extra layer. The really important thing is if you have a kick, a short duration kick on top of an 808, the most important thing is to check the phase between the two. Even though they're not the same element, they don't share phase coherent recordings, the phase will still affect them. So so do, do a phase invert on those to make sure that they're not canceling each other. Now, we can jump to the next question. <laughs> All right. The next question is by Scott Spriggs is what are your go-to reference tracks for hip hop, especially to check low end? God, this is going to be the most egotistical thing in the world. At this point, I don't check other people's stuff that much because I feel like I'm doing it better. I'm so nice. sorry for, I'm not trying to be an egomaniac when I say that. It's That's okay. Just, honestly, like I, my low end, I feel like is very, very good. It's something that I work very hard to do. And I, the mains in my, you've got a very nice low end, Matthew. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's what all the ladies say. Uh, yeah. no, this, I, I have, was just admiring it. I have mains at my studio that crank out low end down to like the, the sub audible region and you can pick apart every bit of it. So it's really, for me, it's the referencing is more about the monitoring. And that's, that's low end is tough because you need a good room to hear it right and good monitors, which I do have. What are they? What are you running? They are, they are custom mains. They were built specifically for the studio. Uh, I think each one of the woofers is a 15 inch and then... There's there's ported horns that carry the tweeters that are backloaded, so you don't actually see any tweeters on there, uh, but they they port out through the horns, and they're there's they're dual horns on each cab. Okay, very nice. I, I like that answer. Um, I, I'm curious about the answer to this from Matt Dolinsky. Coming from a hip hop background, do you feel like listening to and knowing metal tone affects your mixes? <laughs> Coming from a hip hop background, <laughs> do I feel like listening to annoying yeah, metal I music affects my mixes? I, right. <laughs> uh, well, all music affects my mixes, but very little of it affects it in a negative way. If there's something that I find annoying, it just means that I don't do it, which is a positive effect. Uh, oh, oh, wait, he didn't say annoying. He said, do you feel like listening to annoying metal tone affects your mixes? But I love I love that your brain picked up annoying. That's awesome. Well, metal is a genre that, that there's a very thin line between aggression and annoyance. Yeah. <laughs> so, Sometimes no line. Do I feel like listening to and knowing metal music influences my, my mixes? Absolutely. I, you know, recently I've been listening to a lot more classical music. Music, but you know, uh, a while back I was like, I know this is going to be like super dated reference for you guys, but I was listening to a perfect circle and just really digging what I was hearing in this, like it was lo-fi, but it was well-recorded and like everything, all the emphasis of the mix was placed on the groove and the energy of it. And it, I just, it, it took me a moment to be like, well, wait a minute, why can't I sort of use this to inform my more commercially styled mixes? And I think it improved my mixing, just meditating on that kind of a concept. So yeah, of course, every, every bit of, uh, of new music and, you know, new way of hearing something 
has a tremendously positive influence on even the most commercial pop stuff. You know, I think that most great mixers that I know personally draw influence from multiple genres. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's just normal. Do do people still consider a perfect circle metal? Mm. Kind of, right? They they walked like, like, like a prog line or something, right? Yeah, I mean, the question is, do you consider tool metal? And eh, I, I do. It's like, it's like eh, I'm not a metal I mean, guy, so I mean, like for me, like asking for for metal references is like we'll we'll take it, we'll take it, <laughs> kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, maybe they fall under the umbrella somewhere. I mean, I'm also a system of a down fan, which I know is also like basically pop music, but you know. Just, I think they they fall closer into the umbrella, okay. into the center of the umbrella. Oh, that self titled uh, album is excellent. Yeah, they, they've got lots of great stuff. Um, I, I mean, I don't think anyone is going to argue with you about a perfect circle, though. They're an awesome band. They're they're one of those bands that I think people just love. I I, I don't know of anyone. I don't know what to classify them as other than just cool. Okay, well there you go. I mean, it's the genres always get a little blurry to me because it's like, what you know, I, when I'm listening to like, you know, Metallica was still putting out their albums when I was just beginning my musical awareness, really, and you know, they're literally called Metallica. Like, you didn't really get much more metal than that at the time, but even by today's standards, it almost doesn't even sound like metal. Nah, it's a classic rock. Yeah, but uh, you know, it's the genre of metal is so wide that it's it's hard to even really categorize at this point there's so many subgenres and so many iterations of it like it's either you like it or you don't is dream yeah. theater considered metal yeah of some prog metal okay yeah i was, I was having a, a not really an argument because i didn't have an answer but it was something that uh i was talking to with somebody i think they're prog metal i think I mean, someone might argue that they're prog rock or whatever, but I'm not going to get into those arguments. <laughs> someone, they, they, they were saying it's math rock. And, okay, and fine, I'd, it's I'd math ne- rock. I'd never it's heard like, that that term before. That's a term that people use for stuff that's complicated. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so life, <laughs> yeah, right. Or so, but the thing is that usually math rock is for stuff that's rhythmically complicated, like uh, dream theater, like. Well, more like Meshuggah. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Meshuggah's not metal? Well, the thing is, Meshuggah's more like math metal. Um, I don't know, man. To me, it all falls under the big, awesome umbrella of rock and roll. That's fair. Yeah. It's got guitars, it's got drums, it's got bass, it's got a bassist, it's got anger. It falls under the rock and roll umbrella. And uh, some, some... are just more pissed off than others. That's the way I see it. <laughs> some are more Norwegian than others. Yeah, exactly. Some will burn down your church and some won't. You know, like, that's all there is to it. Um, but to me, it's all rock and roll. Uh, it, the reason I say that, too, is because if you listen to the metal of yesteryear, it just sounds like classic rock now. So it's all rock and roll. There you go. Hopefully whoever's editing this can take a lot of that down so I'm not embarrassing myself too badly or at least include the parts where I'm acknowledging that I don't really know metal that well. (laughs) I don't think you said I don't think you said a single embarrassing thing. Sweet. Yeah. Well, Matthew, thank you for coming on. Talking to us and giving us some of your time. It's perfect note to end on. (laughs) You did not embarrass yourself. Thank you for being here. No, you didn't. No, you were you were enlightening. It was cool to have you on. Cool. Um, if you uh, do, you have anything you want to plug, or should I just plug for you? Weiss Sound dot com. Yeah. Pro Audio Files. Go find this guy. He does great sounding stuff. Or go learn from him. Yeah, hey, here I'll, I'll I'll give my uh, my quick rundown. So, a lot of great educational material at theproaudiofiles.com. dot com. And that's true for coming. Uh, I will back it up and say that if you, you know, those of you who are you now the mix subscribers, you are enhanced. Um, if you're looking for other stuff that's equally awesome, 
Pro Audio Files was great. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, actually, I guess if I if I'm if I'm doing the pitch at the end here, then it, what I'm pitching is you know. For for the rock stuff and for metal stuff, nail the mix is very quickly becoming the the standard. I think, um, but for the stuff that's more like getting into the worlds of like pop and and uh, hip hop and and you know jazz and things that I'm doing, the Pro Audio Files has tons of amazing educational information, not just from me but from me as well. Uh, so theproaudiofiles.com. My tutorials are Weiss W E I S S Tuts T U T S. Dot com so weisstuts.com and you know for anybody who's interested in booking me for whatever reason um, you know www.weiss-sound.com great yeah well thank you sir you're welcome sir it's been a pleasure this is all mine the unstoppable recording machine podcast is brought to you by drumforge drumforge is a forward-thinking developer of audio tools and software for musicians and producers alike founded on the idea that great drum sound should be obtainable for everyone we focus on your originality drumforge it's your sound go to drumforge.com for more info to ask us questions make suggestions and interact visit nailthemix.com slash podcast and subscribe to Today.